Good evening and welcome to the Rashi Shir. Um, this is the week before Pesach, which means next week, which is Motzi Yom Tov, there will be no Shir. Um, the following week, which is straight after Pesach, like one day after Pesach, in Yitz Hashem there will be a Shir. So not next week, but two weeks' time, we'll be back on. Now, this week's parasha is Achremot. When we meet in two weeks' time, it'll still be Achremot, except for those listening in Israel, for whom it will be Kedoshim. Anyway, what does it say in Achremot? Lots of things. And it also has, in Perak Yud Chet, Pasuk Bet and Pasuk Gimel, the following, Hashem says, speak to the Bnei Yisrael and tell them that I am Hashem. And then he goes on to say, Don't do like the deeds of um, the land of Egypt where you used to live. Nor like the deeds of the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you there. Do not do. That's the second time it says do not do. No, I'm sorry, it's the first time. Yeah, no, it is the second time it says do not do. And do not go in their chukim, sometimes translated as statutes. And this is the idea of what's colloquially called chukatagoi. But in terms of what is prohibited, is what comes in the next uh, chapter, basically. There's another sort of introduction in Pasuk Dalad, and then in Pasuk Hay, and then you get stuck in from Pasuk Vav onwards into the things that you cannot do, which is basically forbidden sexual relationships, usually incestuous and one or two other things which you can't do, and that's what the people in um, Egypt did and the people in Canaan did. But Rashi on the words, Ubechuko Techem Lo Teilechu, the end of Pasuk Gimel, so having said already, don't do like the deeds of Mitzrayim and Canaan, Hashem also says, don't go in their chukim. And Rashi says, Ma shalo amar. What has been left by the verse which hasn't already been said? In other words, it's already said clearly, don't do the bad things that other nations do. Why does it need to also say, so Rashi says, Ela elu nimusot. These are the habits, customs, culture, shalahen, of them. In other words, we don't list things which are not necessarily forbidden like incestuous relationships, but they're still bad things that the other nations do. Devorim hachukin, things which are chukim, but with a double kuf, chukuk, which are engraved on them, kagon tartiot v'itstadiot, like theatres and stadiums, or I should say, stadiar. And then he says, Rabbi Meir Omer, another opinion, Rabbi Meir says, Elu darche ha'amori shemanu hachamim. They are the ways of the Emirates, but the sages listed in the Gemara, um, which is probably what we would call chukatagoi. What I want to ask is, what is meant by teatriot ve'itstadiot, theatres and stadia? And what is Rashi telling us when he says we shouldn't follow non-Jew, non-Jewish ways, non-Jewish nimusot, uh, culture or behaviour or habits, by going to theatres and stadia? And I'll also say, what does it tell us, as I think most people would describe themselves here as modern Orthodox Jews, what does that mean for us? But I'll answer it by asking a different question. Why does Rashi say this? What is the clue in the Pasuk? So the question in the Pasuk, Rashi said explicitly, the question is, 
what's been left that hasn't already been said, which is added with the words, So he's got to find something else, which is not explicitly forbidden in the psukim that comes, but nevertheless is something to be avoided. And uh, I'm going to give you three answers why he comes down to Tartiot Vet Stadiot, which, by the way, is what the Gemara of Odazara says as well. And the first is, What does Loteilechu mean? Do not go. What would you normally expect, but Chukotechem? Do not follow. Yes, okay, but or what's he used twice in the same pasuk already? Lota asu. Do not do. So here it says tolechu. Don't go, implying that it refers to a place, not just a practice. So if it were just a practice, he would say lota asu. But because it says lotelechu, it's talking about a place that you shouldn't go to. Okay. So what sort of place? Theatres and stadia. Now, why theatres and stadia? So another uh, point to make is, what do we understand by chukim? When we say we've got to keep the chukim, what do we always mean by chukim? Things that we can't understand. Okay, the most famous is the paraduma, but in fact, there are lots and lots. In fact, probably I would argue that most of our mitzvot fall into the category of chukim because we really don't understand. There's no logical or sociological reason why we have to keep many, many of our mitzvot. So chukim are things that we can't understand. So chukotechem are things that they can't understand. Things that they do that also make no sense. Now, what are exactly tatriot advit stadiot? So Rashi in the Gemara said it's stadiot, stadia, it's the same word, it comes from the same Greek word, are places, and he refers to a particular activity that goes on in the stadia. So he's not necessarily talking about footy matches per se, he's talking about bullfights. Because in the Gemara, Rashi explains that it's a place where they bring on wild bulls and they chase people, and sometimes people get killed, and other people watch, and it's great, it's very interesting to watch. Does that make any sense? Why would anyone put a person, choose to put a person in danger of getting killed by a rampaging bull? And yet, people do. That's what a matador does for a living. Um, that's what happens at bullfights. And by extension, that's what happens in other situations where people deliberately put themselves in danger for the entertainment of the masses. So you could say, this makes no sense. What about Tatriot? What about theatres? So um, I did see somebody who said it's a gathering of where it's like a forum where priests, idolatrous priests of Avodah come. Now that might be very nice because we can say, oh, that's nothing to do with us. We don't go today in 2019. We don't go to gatherings of idolatrous priests. So, yeah, I'm okay on that one. However, that's not what Rashi says on the Gemara. Rashi on the Gemara explains this word as places of amusement, where like funny things take place. In other words, comedy. That's, that's what it is. That's what Rashi says it is. And that would imply that, uh, sorry, why is comedy something you can't understand? You know, it's an interesting question because we are so used to comedy being part of our lives. You turn on the television or your various other media, it's, it's very, very well established that we sit down and we watch things and we laugh at other people. We laugh at other people's misfortune because most comedy, some comedy is puns and some is like some clever plays on words, but most comedy, at least in my limited experience, is laughing at other people's ignorance or troubles or simply their social status because that's funny. If you think about it, Sorry to sound very uh, much of a killjoy. People say I'm a killjoy because I'm not very funny. Um, and I suppose I'm being a real spoil sport here. But most comedy 
is about laughing at other people's misfortunes or just the way they are. Why would anyone do that? Does it make any sense? I would argue that it doesn't actually make any sense. It's absurd, but it's what's done. So perhaps that's why those two places are identified as chukim or chukotehem, because just like our chukim make no sense to us, although we know HaKadosh Baruch Hu commands us for whatever he has good reasons for, but theatres and stadia, in other words, places of comedy and places of where people risk their lives for entertainment, don't make any sense. Now, there's a third point, though. And let me just say, um, some people would say uh, modern orthodoxy, which many of us here would subscribe to, means that we can partake of the world around us. And we don't have to put up barriers, and we don't have to stop watching television or, or taking the best out of the culture and the philosophy and the... Uh, um, you know, the culture around us. Rashi said the word, the word that I had trouble um, translating or pronouncing, is chokotehem, he connected to the word chokokin, um, engraved, and which implies that um, he's talking about practices which become engraved into one's personality. And he's talking about chokotehem, the practices of other nations which are intricately, par, intri- intimately and intrinsically part of their lifestyle. And going to these stadia to see these bullfights and going to the theatres to see comedy is something which is hakuk, which is engraved onto them. So you could say perhaps that Rashi is not saying that you can never go to the theatre to watch something funny or in our day watch something on television which is funny, but don't make it engraved, don't make it intrinsically part of one. And let me just end, and it's very hard to, to give Musa. Um, the, the best way to give Musa is to give it to oneself, which is really what I'm doing right now, and you can listen in. Um, there, there is a view that, and I think there's a valid view, that modern orthodoxy means that we can learn Tosfus and we can see Shakespeare, and we can and, and read Gemara, and we can read Kierkegaard. And if you read the first 20 pages of Halachic Man, you'll see that the Rav certainly was an expert in in, in general non-Jewish philosophy. And if you understand the first 20 pages, you're doing even better than most people. And you can really see how the Rav uh, and the uh, uh, philosophy that he represents and the lifestyle that he represents takes the very best and the very finest out of non-Jewish culture and uses it in the service of Torah. But, but there is a very big difference between combining Tosfot and Shakespeare and combining Tosfot and How I Met Your Mother. They're very different things. And I think there's a danger in saying that, that we believe in taking the best of the philosophy around us and instead taking the worst of the philosophy around us and letting that become part of our personality. So, a bit of muscle there, directed to myself, but we can all think about that. If uh, we can't put it aside because Rashi's saying it, he's quoting the Gemara, uh, it's not good enough to say, ah, well, Rashi's Haredi. But, but for us modern Orthodox, it's different because you can't do that to Rashi. <laughs> okay, let us resume um, our study of Bereshit. And we are um, up to Perik Gimel Pasuk Aleph. Baruch Atah so the Nachash Haya Arum Mikol Chayot Hasadeh, the Nachash, the snake, was, Rashi says, wiser than all the animals of the field. And he said to the woman, so we'll just pause there. 
Last week we mentioned what was the Nachash's motivation, and Rashi explained that in the context of explaining why the previous Pasuk, which explained that Adam and Chava, before they ate from the tree, were naked and they were not ashamed, and along comes the Nachash. And Rashi made the point that really um, the next thing that happened and what should have been written next was Hashem makes clothes for them, not as we might have thought that Hashem making clothes in Pasuk Kaf Aleph was a response to eating of the fruit and realizing they were naked. And the reason it's not a response is because they made clothes for themselves in Pasuk Zion. We might even get there tonight. Um, however, says Rashi, the whole story of the Nachash is put here straight after the, the fact that Adam and Chava were naked because the Nachash was attracted to Chava. That's what Rashi says, that the Nachash saw Adam and Chava uh, naked and having relations in public, which they did before the sin because there was nothing um, improper about that or nothing that they understood to be improper about that. And the Nachash had an attraction for Chava and wants Adam to be out the picture so that he can be with Chava. That's what Rashi says. Okay, so how does he go about it? So now in the middle of Pasuk Kimol, Vayoma el ha'isha, he said to the isha, Af ki amar elokim lo tochlu mikol eitz hagan. So I'll leave Rashi to translate Af ki amar elokim. And Rashi said, I'm sorry, I've missed out a Rashi because um, I forgot where we were up to last week. Arum mikol. Let's do Rashi on Arum mikol. Uh, in the middle of Pasuk Gimel. So Rashi says, Lefi aramato ugdolato haita mapalato. According to his cleverness and his greatness was, and I'll add the word correspondingly, his fool. He starts off in this Pasuk, Arum Mikol, and in Pasuk Yudalad he ends up Arur Mikol, cursed of all, the most cursed of all. So Rashi's saying here he's the most clever of all, and he ends up the most cursed of all. According to the level of his cleverness and his greatness was precisely the level of his fall. Which word is Rashi explaining? There's a word here which is unnecessary and Rashi comes along and tells you what we learn from it. Any guesses, any thoughts? Okay, so I would suggest, and because uh, this is what the most of the Mephoshim suggest, is the word is Mikol. Or Mikol All we really need to know is the Nachash was clever. And the Nachash was devious, or if you like, or the Nachash had a plan. Why do we need to know he's the most clever of all the Chayat Hashem Elokim? Says Rashi, in order to set us up for his downfall. So the, we're told that he was the most clever in order for us to appreciate his downfall. And Rashi also points out the word Mikol is repeated here and again in Pasuk Yudalad to make directly the comparison. Okay, so then I went on, uh, we've already said, af ki elokim. What does Rashi say? Af ki elokim. Shema amar lachem. What does Shema mean? Perhaps, maybe. Sort of, Asking a question. It's a, when you say perhaps, you sort of expect an answer, but you're actually leaving open the possibility of a question. You're starting a conversation. Shema amar lachem lo tochlu mikol. Perhaps he said to you, don't eat from all the trees. So what is Rashi doing? What is, which word is Rashi commenting on? So he, he, Rashi says in his Dibra Matkel, af ki amar which Rashi then translates as Shema Amar. In other words, he's taking Afki to mean Shema. Does Afki even 
key, well, key is the problem, actually, or essentially the solution to, to our problem. Does af key mean shema, perhaps? Well, not very often. I, I didn't check if it does anywhere else, I'm sorry. But key does. Rashi says in a few places that key has four meanings, and one of them is ulai, perhaps, or shema, perhaps. So what it seems easiest to explain that Rashi is doing is reading it as if it were written ki af. So uh, ki can introduce when or if or maybe, as in perhaps. So if it had ki first, followed then by af, ki af amar elokim. Is it shema, perhaps, indeed, or even Hashem has said to you, don't eat from all the trees of the garden. So fairly simple point. Rashi understands af ki as shema, and probably because he says we should read it as if it were ki af. And ki, um, one of the meanings of ki is shema, and by the way, no other meaning really makes sense. Uh, if you translate ki as because, or you translate the ki as when, or you translate ki as if, none of those make sense in this pasuk, but shema does. Okay, yes? Can I just ask, how is af translated? How is af translated? So af is even or I, I want to just try like indeed. So perhaps Hashem has indeed said to you. I think that works. Uh, it's easier for me to say that than to say Rashi's reading as if it's not there. That's an alternative, by the way, because key works as Shema quite well. So you could say that Rashi is saying that af is like as if it's not there. But I, I'm, I'm very loath to say that. I'd rather say that he's translating, he's reversing the order, and af means something like indeed. Okay. Now, lo tochlu mikol eitz hagan. Now, did Hashem say, don't eat from all the trees of the field? Any ideas? No. Come on, guys. No, no, no. no. the answer is no. Uh, if you want to check, um, it was back in, ooh, um, Perakbet, Pasuk, Tet. It's Zion? Tet Zion. Oh, there he talks about the trees. And in Tet Zion, he says, thank you very much. You can certainly eat from all the trees of the, of the garden. But you can't eat from the tree of Dat Tovara. So the um, Nachash is clearly saying something which is um, not true. And he's got a reason for saying that. Um, and, but Rashi has something else to say. So he says, uh, on, carrying on from where we were, Shema amalachem lo tachol mikol, etc. And then Rashi says, Af al pi otam ochlim mishar perot. Even though um, he saw them eating from the other fruits, hirba aleha devarim. He added words onto her. In other words, he found things to talk about. Kadei shetashivenu in order that she would reply to him, and then he would come to speak about that particular tree. So Rashi says, to point out that the Nachash is being devious, the Nachash knows that he's, he's pro, uh, positing a false premise. How does he know? Because he's seen them eat from the other trees. Now, does the Torah recall that they were eating from the other trees? No, it doesn't. So how does Rashi know that the Nachash saw them eating from the other trees? So an answer given is, well, they must have been eating something. 
and there's only one source of food. They don't eat animals. Um, they, can't, they don't eat from that particular tree they're forbidden from eating. So they, uh, you might say they haven't been alive very long. That's an interesting possibility. But assuming they've already needed to eat, they must have been eating from the other trees. So Rashi, rather than say Hashem didn't command them not to eat from the other trees, because the Nachash doesn't necessarily know what Hashem commanded, it's not 100% clear if he knows that or not, but he, in order to show that the Nachash is saying something that the Nachash knows to be not true, Rashi points out that they must have been eating from the other trees and the Nachash must have seen them do so. So why, therefore, does he say this thing which is not true and he knows it's not true? So Rashi answers that as well. He answers that by saying that he wanted to engage her in conversation. He, he wanted to find something to talk about and then to move the conversation on to the one tree. Let's move on. So the response comes, Chava says to the Nachash, V'tomer ha'isha el ha'nachash, mipri eitz hagan nochel. From the fruit of the tree of the garden, we can eat. Um, interesting, she doesn't say mikol from all the fruits, um, like Hashem had said to her, them. Hashem had said mikol eitz hagan ochel tochel. Hashem emphasizes the, uh, the permission, the, the extent of the heter. You can surely eat from all the trees. And then he says, except one. And it's interesting that when Chava re- repeats that, she doesn't say from all the trees. She says, um, we can eat from the trees. And then she's going to say, ah, but the one in the middle of the garden we can't eat from. Um, Rashi doesn't say this. This is purely a little bit of a little drosha, that when people, uh, sometimes they focus on what they're not allowed to do rather than what they are allowed to do. So for her, the way she represents the expanse of the permission is much less than the way Hashem actually put it to, to, or to Adam. Not to her, because she wasn't around at the time. That's, we'll come to that story as well. So she says to the Nachash, we can eat from the trees of the garden. Rashi's got nothing to say on that, so we'll move straight to Pasuk Gimel. Umepri ha'etz asher betoch hagan, amar elokim lo tochlu. And from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, um, which Hashem didn't actually say where the tree was. She focuses it on being in the middle of the garden. Having said that, Rashi says it was in the middle of the garden. Anyway, Omar Elokim, Hashem has said, Lo tochlu mimenu, do not eat from it, velo tigubo, and do not touch it, pentumutun, lest you die. Did Hashem say that? No, Hashem didn't say anything about touching the tree, and that will be a focal part of the story, the way Rashi understands it. So Rashi is going to zero in on the fact that Chava and maybe Adam had expanded on the prohibition. And I'll just tell you now, a little bit of a spoiler alert, what's going to happen in the next Pasuk, according to Rashi, is, everyone remember? The Nachash pushes her onto the tree, and she touches it, and he says, ah, you didn't die from touching it, so you won't die from eating it either. In other words, well, we'll leave the rest for Rashi. Okay, so Rashi is clearly uh, bothered by this point that Chava says something that Hashem did not say. The Lot Tigu Bo, where she says that Hashem had said you can't eat it and you can't touch it. Says Rashi, Hosifa al Hatsivui. She added to the command, Leficha ba Lidei Gara'on. And therefore she came to a reduction. Opposite of adding. Instead of adding, she ended up lower. Hushin Emar, 
as it says in Mishlei, Al Tosef Al Devarav. Do not add to his words. The full Pasuk is Kol Imrat Elokatz Rufa. Oh, the beginning of the Pasuk, sorry. All the sayings of God are refined in the sense they're all perfect. And then the end of the Pasuk is Al Tosef Al Devarav. Don't add to his words. So, Says Rashi here, and in Pasuk Dalad, I've just told you, for those who didn't remember, that the Nachash pushes her into the tree and she, doesn't, uh, she touches it and doesn't die, and the Nachash says, aha. Uh, so it's the very fact that she added that caused a big problem. In fact, you could even say it caused the whole problem, the way Rashi tells the story. So what does it mean that she added? Why did she add? That's one question. Another question is, Rashi brings a Pasuk to say it's not a good idea to add to Hashem's words. And he brings that Pasuk from Mishle. Could he have found a better Pasuk? Do we know a Pasuk which might be more clear and even better than Nach? Hint, hint. Uh, good one. No, that's about listening. to. Uh, actually, interesting enough, that might come into the story. I hadn't thought of it yet. That's about don't deviate from what the rabbis tell you to the left or the right. But in Ve'etchanam Perek Dalad Pasuk Bet, it says... Lo tosifu al hadavar asher anochi metzaveh etchem, v'lo tigra'u mimenu. Do not add to the word which I, say, I command you, and do not detract from it. And from this we get the prohibition of Baal Tosif. Do not add mitzvot, and also, pretty obviously, do not subtract mitzvot. So, let me give you two explanations. So, the first explanation comes from the Go'arie, the Maharal, who says that, Chava, and maybe Adam as well. Um, it's interesting, the Maharal gives a very, sort of, very pedestrian sort of explanation, but it's, it fits, that they thought that there was something that was naturally bad about the tree. It was toxic. They thought there was a physical problem with the tree. And if they ate it, they would die. And if you think that the tree is poisonous, then obviously if you touch it, there's going to be a problem as well. Don't go around touching poisonous trees. And that also explains why when um, she was pushed against it in the next Pasuk, um, and, he sa- and, and, and nothing bad happened to her, the Nachash was able to say at that point, you see, it's not a toxic tree after all. Okay, so that would explain, and therefore why, by the way, do we not bring the Pasuk about don't adding extra mitzvot? Because according to this, they weren't adding any extra mitzvot. They were saying, look, the mitzvah is don't eat it. But obviously, there's a natural reason not to touch it either. And if I touch it, I'm probably going to die. But not in the context of a mitzvah. In the context of almost a a natural scientific observation. And that would explain why Rashi doesn't bring the pasuk of lo tosifu ala devar, which refers to adding extra mitzvot, but he brings another pastor which just says, Al Tosef Al Davarav, it's not a good idea to add to his words under any circumstances because you can see bad things happen. They added to his words in the sense that they thought, well, if he says don't touch it, then obviously there's a physical problem. Sorry, if he says don't eat it, then obviously there's a physical problem with touching it as well. But that's not in the context of adding a mitzvah. Yes? In respect to a Humrah, how would I deal with that? Well, let me get straight into the second explanation I want to share. Okay, so put that one aside. The second explanation is this, and, and this perhaps is um, 
you, you ask about chumras, but we have a whole class, before we get into that, we have a whole class of halachot, which you might think go against this principle. And that is called a sayag Torah. It says in Pirkei Avot, at the very beginning of Pirkei Avot, that the Anshay Ganesha Agadola were obliged to make a sayag to the Torah. What is a sayag to the Torah? We call it a fence around the Torah. What's the idea of making a fence around the Torah? To make a safer Torah. <laughs> uh, okay. That, that, that was like a joke. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry? Comedians. Indeed. What's the idea of a fence around the Torah? Give me an example of a fence around the Torah. A mitzvah midrabbanan, a rabbinic extra law to protect the integrity of the Torah itself. Muksa. Everyone says muksa. Muksa is probably the best example because it's, it's very much sort of in our face. Um, the Torah, to put it very simply, it's, it's, uh, there's different views amongst the Roshon about how muksa actually works, but the basic idea is the Torah says, don't write, and therefore the rabbis come along and say, don't even move a pen. Because if you move a pen, well, there's various reasons why it, uh, the Roshonim give for why you shouldn't move a pen, but the basic idea is you don't write with a pen. In fact, if we just kept Shabbat according to the laws of the Torah without the injunctions from the rabbis, our Shabbat would look very, very different. Other areas of halakha, not necessarily so, but Shabbat would look completely different before first the Nevi'im and then the rabbis got involved and made a whole lot of extra injunctions. Now, is that good? Do we have a posset here that says, Lo tosifu ala davar, don't add to the mitzvot. The rabbis come along and say, don't move a pen on Shabbos, and thousands and thousands of other halachot. Is that good? Yes, as long as, as long as... What? You don't change it. Well, instead you are changing it by extending it, as long as it's clear. What is midoraita and what is midorabana? And when one studies a halachic topic, the very first question that one wants to ask, almost invariably, is what aspects of this topic are midoraita and what aspects are midorabanan. And it's very important that we know the difference. It's very important that we know that um, there are certain things which are only prohibited by the rabbis. Now, if they're prohibited by the rabbis, you can't do them. Full stop. Although there are certain leniencies in the case, for instance, of a cholo she'en sakana. Uh, if somebody is in danger of dying, then you override every law in the Torah except the big three. If somebody is not in danger of dying, but nevertheless they are ill, and you have to ask a competent Rav to know how ill is ill, but then we can override, possibly, the mitzvah midrabanan, but we can't override the mitzvah from the Torah. The other big difference, by the way, is a case of sofa, a case of doubt. If you're not sure whether you have, you're in a situation where the Torah law applies, you have to keep the Torah law. If you're not sure where the Midrabbanon law applies, uh, you don't have to um, uh, be strict with the, Torah, uh, with the Midrabbanon. If, you're not, if you've forgotten whether you made a bracha or not, which is pretty sad that you're paying so little attention to the act of making a bracha that you can forget whether you made a bracha or not, don't make it again, because making bracha is only Midrabbanon. But if you've forgotten whether you've benched or not, which is also pretty sad, you can forget whether you've benched, but people can, yes, I know, then um, you do bench again because that's min ha Torah, that's from the Torah. So, just, just one moment. Sorry? It's what, even. Uh, good question. Whether women are I mean, the writer because. As in, like, yes. it's not always. Okay, like, you're right, you're right. right. And it also depends if you've had enough to satisfy you. Uh, if you just have the relevant shi'ur of a kazayat, 
um, or kibetza rather, does that mean you've had enough to make you chayav midoraita? But under some circumstances, yeah. you chayav midoraita. There's an interesting question whether women are chayav midoraita because of the phrase val britchasha tamto besoreno, and uh, that might not apply to women. Um, but some say they are obliged midoraita anyway. But yes, thank you for that emendation. But yes, the verse of not moving left or right, being that that having been like a commandment of the Torah. Um, yeah, the Torah commands you to listen to the rabbis. To to the it's clever. Rabbi. So then, is that, does that not make it the technically the level of the right? Okay, very good question. Famous question asked, because it's an obvious question. And the answer is... <laughs> the answer is... Sorry, does... For those who can't hear, does the... Uh, the, we have a mitzvah to listen to the rabbis, lo tasur, do not deviate from what the rabbis say. Does that not make every midrabbanon effectively a midraita? The answer is, built into the framework of that mitzvah is there are distinctions between a midrabbanon and a midraita. So the Torah tells you to listen to the rabbis, but the Torah also tells you, if, for instance, you're in doubt whether you have to follow the mitzvah midrabbanon, then you can be makel, you can be lenient in that situation. That's built into the framework of the Torah mitzvah itself. Anyway, what happens if the rabbis make such a takana or such an institution or such a fence around the Torah? Have they transgressed? Don't add. If it's inaction, you can't really tell if you're doing something extra or just not doing something. True, and most mitzvot with the rabbanon are negative. Most things they tell us are, don't do this. Uh, I think, I think, I'm pretty sure it's most. There are some things they tell you to do, like say hello and uh, light Shabbat candles and read the Megillah. Um, but if it's in action, um, well, the Torah says there's no laws about moving pens on Shabbos. The rabbis say there is a law about moving pens on Shabbos. But you I'm can't do it. Okay, so you wouldn't move your pen anyway. Um, it's interesting, uh, just by sitting here, we're, we're fulfilling many mitzvot. We're not murdering anybody right now. So we give ourselves a big tick for that, big pat on the back. <laughs> um, unless you embarrass somebody, which is equivalent to murdering, so maybe it's not so easy. Um, but I, I think the point is, and this is the point I want to get to, if the rabbis make a sayag, a fence, as long as, and the Rambam says this in Hilchot Mamrim, Perak Bet Pasa Mishka Halachatet, that as long as it is clear what is Midoraita and what is Midorabanan, then they're not transgressing this command. If, however, there's a confusion, says the Rambam, and they make a Sayag, an extra fence, and it's considered as if it's considered to be a midoraita. People don't know that there's a difference. Then, they, says the Rambam, they have transgressed this mitzvah of Loto Sifu al-Hadavah. It's as if they've added an extra mitzvah. So creating a mitzvah midorabanan, but letting people think it's a doraita, that would be a transgression, says the Rambam. What was going, this. What was going on here? So... I gave you the Maharal's explanation that, that Chava was presenting it as something natural because there's something wrong with the tree. Push that on one side and let's go to what's probably the more obvious explanation that Chava was saying, we, Adam and Chava, have added an extra stricture. Hashem said, don't eat. We say, don't touch. And that is a classic sayag. That's a classic fence. It's, it's a very clear paradigm. Just like don't touch or rather don't move the pencil on Shabbat, Adam and Chava say, we're not going to touch the tree. But what did they do wrong? What did they do wrong? What did she say? She actually said, 
Hashem has said, Lo tochlu imenu, velo tigubo. Hashem has said, don't eat it and don't touch it. So she made the classic mistake of confusing what we would anachronistically call a mitzvah midarabanan with a mitzvah midaraita. Just one minute. Now, why then, if, according to the Rambam, that's transgressed, loto sifu, don't add a new mitzvah, why doesn't Rashi quote that posuk? So I saw a beautiful answer, that Rashi follows the Rivad. Because the Rivad, if you look there in Hilchat Mamrim, in the Mishnah Torah, the Rivad disagrees with the, with, um, with the Rambam. And the Rivad says, if you're making what we call a mitzvah midarabanan, or a sayag, even if... And you shouldn't do this, even if you let people get confused and think it's a mitzvah midaraita, then that is not a transgression of loto sifu. And what does Rashi say loto sifu means? If you look at Rashi here in Parshavet Chanan, Rashi says loto sifu, kagon chamesh parshiot batafilim, chameshet minim balulav, vachamesh sitziot. Like Five parashiot in the tefillin. In the tefillin, on the head and the arm, there are four parashiot of the Torah. If you come along and say there should be five, there are four minim in the lulav. If you come along and say there should be five, there are four corners on the sitzit. Funny enough, it's the same number each time. If you come along and say there should be five, that would be a transgression. So it sounds like Rashi is quoting those examples because Rashi understands exactly as the Riva does, who also quotes the same examples, that Loto Sifu is not just extending an existing mitzvah, like you can't write on Shabbat, so we're not going to let you move the pen, but rather saying, I'm going to create a whole new category. There's a fifth Pasha in the Tefillin. Instead of four, I'm going to add five. There's a fish, fifth min in the Lulav, etc. And the Rivad would say, if you, um, if you just make a, an extension of the existing mitzvah with a Sayag, with a um, offense, that would not be considered Loto Sifu. So it seems um, that, and I think this fits very nicely, that Rashi here, on when he understands Loto Sifu, it's not the sort of thing that would apply in this case, in the case of Adam and Chava saying, not only can you not eat from the fruit, they're saying you can't touch the fruit either. And that would explain why Rashi doesn't bring the Pasuk of Loto Sifu, but he brings a different Pasuk from Mishle that just says, it's not a good idea to add to Hashem's words. But he doesn't bring the pasuk that says you've actually contravened the halacha of not creating a new mitzvah. Okay, there was a question. Yes. Um, why, why would Chava add the part? Uh, I mean, she's saying you shall neither eat it nor touch it. Isn't it pasuk that if you touch it and you're going to die? Certainly, if you eat it, you're in as well. Can't you also read it? I think there's there's something significant about the order here. It says we shall neither eat nor touch it. But I think that if it's said the other way around, you shall neither touch it nor eat it, then it would be clear that she's adding on. Can't you read it as she says, God has said you shall neither eat it, and then she leaves it there, and then she adds on her own. She adds on her own. I see what you mean. Omar Elohim. Okay. So you're suggesting that you read the past circles. Omar Elohim, lo tochlumi meno. Hashem said don't eat from it. Yeah, and then she adds on her book. And we also can't touch it. Yes. Um, I suppose it's possible. Um, also, why are we holding... Uh, I, I, the only thing I just want to say in response to that, um, and without having thought very deeply about it, is I suppose you could read it that way, but I don't think it's the most natural reading of it. Um, the problem is the Vav, um, which to what extent is the Vav a... a just a continuation 
or the start of something new is never clear because it could be either. It could mean a lot of things. That little innocent little vav could mean a lot of different things. And, and in terms of passion, you have to be careful to understand what all the, application, all the implications are. But I think the natural way to read it is, Amar Elohim, Hashem said, Lo tochlu men over lo tigubo. At least that's certainly the way Rashi reads it. Would, would that be a feasible way of reading it? I, I think it, it's obviously not Rashi. Um, I think it probably, without having you know, checked how we see similar pasukim elsewhere in the Tanakh, which would be the, really the way to check, is, yes, I think it's, it's reasonable. Uh, and you're also thinking, if it had said don't touch, then it wouldn't need to say don't eat, because you can't eat without touching. Um, almost you can't. There is a reference to eating without touching in this week's Sedra. I'll leave that for you to find. Um, so, just uh, another quick one. Why uh, are we holding them accountable to the pasuk saying you can't add on? When with Adam, when he was... I get into the essence of the animals. We didn't hold him accountable to know how it was. So surely he wouldn't have been revealed to the Torah and this would have never applied as well. Okay, very good. Very good. Why am I suggesting that Adam should have kept the Torah? Uh, that's not really my question. My question is, why does Rashi bring a Pasuk from Mishle when... That Pasuk wasn't around then. Yeah, but the Pasuk in Mishle wasn't around any more than the Pasuk in Devarim. So we would, my first, our, our first thought would be there would be a good Pasuk in Devarim which has the same message as the Pasuk in Mishle, but even better. And I'm saying that, uh, I know it's a little bit anachronistic to talk about Rambam and Raivad and Rashi and Adam because we're sort of putting them all on the same, uh, well, certainly we're saying that Rashi, I'm saying that Rashi is applying the Machloket, Rambam and Raivad to the situation of Adam and Chava. Um, but I think... In turn, if it were adding a new mitzvah, then there would have been a much better pasuk for Rashi to bring. That's what I'm saying. Okay, were there any other questions? Yes? Do you perceive it as, like, the issue is adding a mitzvah or that it's, like, more important to know the difference, like, to know the source, that, like, like being educated as to, like, the, yes, we have Zorat and, and Darabana and you have to keep both, but, like, like the, the Isha didn't know that, you know, violating one, like that was her addition, like maybe if she had known the difference, like she would have been able to like set the boundaries for um, <laughs> Not like... I, I think I understand what you mean. Well, as I, I keep promising what's coming next in the next Rashi um, about the Nakash pushing against the tree. And I think you, you could say, and I think Rashi does say, Rashi implies that had she been clear that Hashem himself had not said, don't touch the tree, then the terrible catastrophe would not have happened because the Nachash used that uh, in his wily way of getting her to eat from the fruit. Now, by the way, what Rashi hasn't explained, and I leave open, is where Chava got this idea from. So there's two possibilities, or three actually. Either Chava got it on her own, she just thought to herself, well, I'm not supposed to eat from the fruit, so probably I'm not supposed to touch it. Or... Adam and Chava had decided it amongst themselves that they sat down together and they said, listen, Hashem has said, don't touch the fruit, sorry, don't eat the fruit, so we shouldn't touch it as well. I mean, I'll leave you open the possibility that uh, they they just thought it was a good idea or they thought it was a mitzvah. Or, this is the interesting one, Adam heard from Hashem, don't eat it. And Adam told his wife that Hashem has said, don't eat it and don't touch it. Remember, Chava wasn't there when the instruction was given. So there was a degree of transmission. And it's completely left open, and Rashi doesn't address this, 
was it Adam's mistake to tell it to Chava, or was it Chava's mistake on her own, or was it the mistake of both of them together? But let's go on to Pasuk um, Dalet. Vayoma Hanachash El Ha'isha, the snake said to the woman, Lo mut tomutun, you will not die. Now, Rashi is bothered by how does he prove it? How does he say it um, convincingly? After all, the simple Peshat is, she says, Hashem says we're going to die. He says, you won't. And she goes ahead and follows his words. So the simple Peshat is that she's very gullible. But Rashi isn't happy with that. Rashi says there's something that happened that proved to her that she would not die. And it is, it follows directly on from what we said in the previous Pasuk. So in Pasuk Dalet, Rashi says, He pushed her until she touched it. And he said to her, Just like there's no dying, there's no death with touching it, So there is no death with eating it. So by forcing her in a situation where she transgressed the mitzvah that was never a mitzvah, he then proved that the validity of the mitzvah that was a mitzvah is not there. And, by the way, the Maharal, who you might remember, was the one who said that it was some sort of natural observation, there's something dangerous about the tree. Um, He says here, this fits in nicely with what happened here, because if there were a halachic problem with touching the tree, that, again, I'm getting a little bit uh, anachronistic by applying a halachic principle to a situation which was there at the dawn of time, long before the Torah was given. But anyway, um, we know that there is a distinction between transgressing something deliberately and transgressing something through onus, by being compelled, by being forced, either because, you know, accidentally you fall on the light switch on Shabbat. That's not really honest, that's mitasik. Um, or somebody puts a gun to your head and says, you've got to transgress this mitzvah. What should you do? Well, if it's not one of the big three, you should transgress the mitzvah and not be shot dead. And an honest, under some circumstances, there are some people who these days want to expand the principle much broader than it ever was before, but under some circumstances, um, under compulsion, then the halacha doesn't punish you. So had it been a mitzvah, uh, even an imagined mitzvah, then Chava could have turned to the Nachash, and the Nachash says, look, you've touched the tree and you haven't died. Chava could have turned around and said, there's no proof, because this was honest, because you pushed me. I didn't touch the tree willingly, I was forced to touch the tree, so there's no proof, because that's a different case. The Maharal says she doesn't say that, because it wasn't an issue of a mitzvah, it was issue of the natural toxic- the toxicity of the tree. And therefore, whether she was pushed or not pushed wouldn't have made a difference. Following on this Maharal idea, um, the snake says, you think there's something poisonous about the tree, and if you touch it, you'll get hurt. Well, you've just touched it, you didn't get hurt, there's nothing wrong with the tree. Okay, then, let's go on. Pasuk, hey. The Menachash continues. Having said, lo mutamultun, you will surely not die. Ki yodea elokim, because God knows on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is one of the very hard psukim to know what's going on. What Rashi gives us is a fairly straightforward understanding. We just have to work through various stages of the Rashi. Um, so let's, let's look at Rashi. Ki 
So Rashi starts with a strange comment, which will make sense a little bit later. Kol uman shoner et b'nei amunoto. Every craftsman hates his fellow craftsmen, the people who make the same thing as him. Um, I don't know if that's uh, universally true, um, but there certainly is sort of a rivalry. Um, if you bring a plumber to your house to fix a burst pipe, the plumber is unlikely to say, oh, the previous plumber, he did a really good job. Um, I'll try and do a good job as well. Most likely, the plumber will say, will suck in his teeth and go, not a very good job done here. That's, that's the caricature of plumbers. Now, um, carpenters, and it's a bit of a difference. I, I gave a little case where something gone wrong with the previous plumbing. What about carpenter? So a carpenter is preparing a beautiful um, chair for you, and he comes to your house, and he sees you've already got a beautiful chair. Now, would a carpenter say, oh, that's really nice, I'm a great admirer of the other carpenter, or would he say, I'm jealous of him, my chair is better? I don't know, I don't know. But Rashi says, uh, by way of sort of a proverb, to help us understand what's going on, and by the way, this is in the words of the Nachash, and the Nachash is crafty and he's not necessarily telling the truth. The Nachash says, starts off by saying, as Rashi expands, every craftsman hates, doesn't like, other craftsmen. Okay, continues Rashi. Min ha'etz achal, Ubara et ha'olam. This is obviously Menachash talking. From that tree, Hashem ate and created the world. So, says the Nachash, the tree gives you the power to do what Hashem did and create the world. And therefore, he doesn't want you to eat from it because he doesn't want you to create worlds. Why? And that's why the first, we needed the first part. Because Hashem is a world creator, so he doesn't want anybody else to be a world creator. That's the logic of the Nachash. And it continues with the last part, you will be like God. And now Rashi says something that isn't there in the Pasuk. But hopefully it's clear why he says it. What does it mean you will be like God? The maker of worlds. So for Rashi, the whole point of the Nachash is don't eat from the tree, because Hashem has told you not to eat from the tree, because if you eat from the tree, you will be like Hashem in the sense of creating worlds, and Hashem doesn't want you to have the power to create worlds. He ate from the tree and created the world. Sounds like the tree created the world, which is an interesting idea. He ate from the tree and created the world, and he doesn't want you to do the same, because, and this is Rashi's first opening comment, to make the whole thing make sense, Craftsmen don't want other people to acquire the same skill in being craftsmen. That's the logic of the Rashi. Sorry, that's the logic of a Nachash as explained by Rashi. Now, two important points. One is Rashi has deliberately missed out three words of the Pasuk. The last three words. Yodea Tovara. So it seems, and uh, the Lavush, who's a commentary on Rashi, says this explicitly, that Rashi regards that as something separate. The Levush says it's as if there was a Vav, one of those little Vavs that make all the difference, before the word Yodei. So it would have read, Vayitim Ke'elokim, you will become like God, i.e. maker of worlds, as Rashi put it. Oh, and by the way, the Yodei Tovara, and you'll also know the difference between good and evil, but the way Rashi has explained it is that's not the focus of the Nachash. It's just a sort of byproduct tucked in on the end. Rashi doesn't explain it, but he does explain, Vayitim Ke'elokim, not that you will be God, i.e. knowing good and evil, as if that's the nature of God, and others want to read the Pasuk that way, but you'll be like God in a way which is not mentioned in the Pasuk, that Rashi has to fill in. You'll be like God and you'll make worlds just like God did, 
And Yodei Tovarai is something different. Now, the other thing I want to point out, I just refer to the end of the Pasuk, let's look at the beginning of the Pasuk. Because the first word of the Pasuk explains why Rashi says what he says. What's the first word of the Pasuk? Key. Yes, very good. What does it mean in English? Well, I said key, it's got four meanings, but... Yeah, good, good, very good. But what's the standard meaning of key? Because. Now, here's the problem. In Pasuk Dalet, the Nachash says, Lo mutamutun, you will not die. And in Pasuk He, he says, Ki, because, Because Hashem knows that on the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God. The problem is, how does that explain the previous phrase? How does the because make any sense? You will not die because God knows on the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and it will be like God. There's no connection between Pasuk Dalet and Pasuk Hay. The key doesn't make any sense, but it does the way Rashi explains it. You will not die because the only reason that Hashem doesn't want you to eat from the fruit is so that you will not become like him and make worlds. Not that there's anything dangerous about the tree. That you're not going to die. The reason he's told you not to eat it is because the Nachash says that Hashem doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to create worlds. So in order for the key to make sense, the rest of Pasuk Hay has to be a reason why Hashem forbade you from eating from the tree. And without this bit about Hashem, as it were, is jealous of other world creators, we would have thought completely the reverse. What could be better than eating from the tree, opening your eyes and knowing the difference between good and evil? Surely Hashem would want you to do that. But because of the key, Pasuk Hay must be a reason why Hashem doesn't want you to do that. And therefore, Rashi explains what he explains. This cunning uh, explanation of the Nachash, that it's all about preserving Hashem's monopoly on world creating, and that's why he doesn't want you to eat from the tree. You won't die from it, but why did he tell you not to eat it? Key, because you're there, Kim, etc. Hashem knows what will happen if you eat from it. And I think we will stop there, and we will, I wish everyone a Chag a happy and kosher, and I would add meaningful Pesach, and we will meet in Yitz Hashem in two weeks' time.